Colossians 3. It's also on your YouVersion app. You can follow along there um, under Believer's Fellowship. But I'm going to read the first 14 or 15 verses of Colossians 3. Paul writes and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you once too walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you give us grace. Grace to live differently than our sinful nature directs us to live. Lord, thank you that we don't have to be bound by things that we once were bound by or are currently bound by, but we can live a life that reflects the image and likeness of Jesus in every part of our lives. Help me to re- reflect this message this morning in this scripture and communicate it in a way that can be understood and help us to have ears to listen and receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For the past two weeks, we've been looking at the New Testament book of Colossians and its major theme. Who can tell me and remember their ma- Well, it's on the screen. Say it out loud. Christ alone. That's the whole point of this entire book, these four chapters in the New Testament. And if you've ever taken the time to really read Paul's New Testament letters, there's several of them. He, he wrote over a third of the New Testament. Um, you'll start to notice something in his writing. There's a pattern that takes place as he writes these letters. Usually when he writes, there is a, a definite change about the midway or halfway point in his letters of the subject that he's talking about. Usually he starts off his writing in the first half of his letters talking about what we believe, talking about beliefs, talking about doctrine, talking about uh, teachings. But then uh, in the second half, 
he begins to talk about more practical things. And he does this in almost all of his letters. For example, in the first two chapters of Colossians that we looked at the past two weeks, he talks to us about what we should believe about who Christ is and that he is the preeminent and supreme ruler over all of creation, things seen and unseen, that the elemental spirits of the world and and creation, our spiritual enemy Satan, all other spiritual influences, they all have to bow to him and submit to him. So he spends uh, the first half of this letter oftentimes, or his letters oftentimes teaching us what we should believe as followers of Christ. And then at a halfway point, like in chapter 3 of Colossians, he begins to pivot and change and deal with more practical teaching of how we ought to behave since we're followers of Christ. And Paul's very intentional about this, and Scripture isn't intentional with this. It always deals with beliefs before it deals with behavior. And the reason for that is is because God knows that beliefs determine behaviors. For example, if you have low self-esteem, if you believe you aren't valuable and you aren't worthy of respect and of love, you will enter into relationships with people who treat you how you think you ought to be treated. You will behave in a way that says that you don't care about yourself or you don't value yourself. You believe a certain thing about yourself and then you live your life according to that belief and you treat yourself and allow others to treat you in a certain way. If you believe that God is a distant God and an uncaring God, your behavior will will reflect that. You will live like God doesn't care what you do. You will live like God doesn't see everything you do. You won't care what you do because you don't believe God cares what you do or that he will hold you accountable for what you do. If you believe you'll never find a job, you won't be motivated to put in the work to prepare yourself for the job market. And then when an opportunity does come along, you won't get the job because you haven't prepared your resume and you haven't honed your interview skills and you haven't done what you need to do to be ready for the opportunity. If you believe that someone has wronged you, it doesn't matter if they actually wronged you, just if you believe that they wronged you, then you will treat that person in certain ways and behave in certain ways toward that person. And if you're hard-headed about it, and you've already decided whether the facts show it or not that they have wronged you, even when an explanation comes, even when the truth comes out, you still act a certain way toward them because you believe a certain thing about that person, so you behave in a certain way toward that person. Every external behavior has an internal belief attached to it. Behavior doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There is always a reason and a thought process behind the things that you do. And if you want behavior to change, then the first thing that has to change is what you believe. What's in your mind? What you think about? So Paul spends two chapters in Colossians telling us and making sure that we have right thinking or right belief before he goes on to talk about right living. Because having your mind right is half the battle. There was a book uh, several years ago by a popular Christian author that talked about the battlefield of the mind and saying that, and this book was all about how you, would, uh, you wouldn't see change in behavior until you won a battlefield in your mind. And Paul is reflecting that in the scripture. He's saying, first, we need to change what you believe. We need to make sure that you're believing the correct things about who Christ is, about what it means to follow Christ, and then we'll deal with the individual behaviors in your life. He starts off in chapter one. We looked at it two weeks ago. And he says that as followers of Christ, 
Christ. Everything must submit to Christ. Like we just sang about and talked about in that last worship song, that he has no rival and he has no equal, and that therefore we have to live in a way where he is Lord and nothing else is, that he is Lord and master over all, that he is the truth, that he is the source of wisdom, that he is our provider of peace and joy. And he reminds us in chapter one that Christ is the image of the invisible God, that he is the express image of God's person and God's personality. And it's only through Christ we have resurrection and we have life. And so he does that in chapter one. We looked at that two weeks ago. And then last week we looked at chapter two, where he reminds us that if Christ truly has no rival and if Christ truly has no equal, if he is above all, then we don't have to submit to any other gods. We don't have to submit to any other spiritual influence. We don't have to live bound to any other demonic influence because we live under the authority of Christ and that he has put those forces and those spiritual powers to open shame and he is trying over them and we can live that way and he has gained victory so that we can have victory and because we are filled with Christ he says in Colossians 2 then we have authority over spiritual powers and influences in our personal lives in our families and in our communities so then he begins in chapter 3 and he says if this is true, if Christ is above all, if, if he is really who we believe he is, and if we have not, we, he has victory over the spiritual influences in our life, he says in verse 1, if then you have identified with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, if you follow Christ, if you have died to the old life and been born again into a new life, if you have been raised with Christ, if you made him his, your Lord, if you've been washed in his blood, if you've identified with his death, and his resurrection, born again and forgiven, if you believe all that, if it's true for your life, then that changes everything. That changes everything about how you walk, how you talk, how you live, how you treat other people. It changes everything about your behavior. If you get the belief right, it will begin to change the behavior. Come on, amen? And all of chapter 3 is about how what we believe about Christ, if we've really made him Lord, then it will be, bring about change in our minds, in our hearts, and in our mouths. He says you used to be spiritually dead, but the resurrection power of Christ has given you a new life in him, so live like it and behave like it. You used to be bound in idolatrous worship and pagan religion, but Christ has shown you the truth and who he is, and he has set you free from old spiritual chains. So live like it and behave like it. And Paul then, he uses this imagery in the scripture of, of, of changing clothes to describe what this transformation is really like. He uses words in Colossians chapter 3 like put off and put on. And in the original language, these are words to describe clothing. These are words to describe a garment change. It's even a military term to talk about putting on uh, the armor for battle and the uniform for battle. Paul is saying in this scripture, we're going to look at a little in detail when he says put off and put on, put off the old man, put on the new man, put off sin and put on righteousness. He's saying if you really believe this stuff, then dress accordingly. Dress in a way, live in a way. And the idea he's trying to get across is this. In the ancient world, and still today, different nationalities and different cultures have distinct ways of dressing, unique 
apparel. And if you were a Roman citizen, you, you dressed like a Roman citizen. And if you were a Greek, you dressed like a Greek. If you were a member of some of those barbarian tribes out in the wilderness, you dressed a certain way. If you were a Middle Eastern Jew, you had a certain way of dressing. And Paul is making the argument that you have had a citizenship change, that your, your citizenship has been transferred to a different kingdom. And so you don't dress the way the rest of people, the rest of the people around you dress. You live, you walk, you present yourself in a way that is different because you are a citizen of a different kind of kingdom with a different kingdom culture. And so if that's true, then just like every other kingdom has a culture associated with it, you and I, when we became Christians, when we decided to follow Jesus, we became citizens of a new kingdom. And that means that we have to begin to adapt the culture of this new kingdom and that our lives shouldn't reflect the culture of our old citizenship, but our lives should reflect the culture of this new kingdom we're a part of. But he's not really talking about the clothes you wear. He's going deeper. He's talking about your life and how you act and what you, what you present yourself as. He's saying that just as you, if you had become a citizen of a new country, you would slowly begin to adapt to the traditions and styles and language and customs of your new home. So it is with us as kingdom culture people. We must begin to change our traditions, our styles, our language, our behaviors, our customs, so that they reflect the king that we now represent. Come on. And this is what we call kingdom culture. We put off certain things. Yes, those things might be acceptable in other kingdoms, and they might be acceptable in other cultures, but in our kingdom, in his culture, we live differently than every other nation, and we live differently than every other kingdom, and we live differently than every other culture. Let me put it another way. In the military, what you're wearing the colors that you're wearing, the insignia that is on your uniform, they communicate who you're fighting for, right? And it's the same with us Christians. See, I can't see your heart. Yes, I know that God judges the heart and God sees the heart and all that, kind of, but I can't see it. I can only tell who you represent by what you show me. I can only tell what kind of person you are by how you act, what's on the outside. I can't see what's in your heart. And so Paul is saying, yes, God sees the heart and God judges the heart, but man doesn't judge the heart. Man judges your behavior. Man looks at your actions. What you say, what you do, how you act is a representation of Christ. And if you act a certain way and you're not representing Christ, you do a disservice to the gospel. You do damage to the gospel. You do damage to the kingdom. If you're going to really be a citizen of this kingdom, You've got to wear the right uniform. You've got to wear the right colors. You've got to make sure that you're representing the king the right way. So he's instructing us. He's saying, you've got to wear the right uniform, represent the colors, be sure that the things that can be observed in your life are representing what you say you believe. That means if you've got a Believer's Fellowship bumper sticker, don't give the one finger salute going down the road, right? I don't want people having that image and that, that impression of our church. That means when you go to the grocery store, people know you lead worship at, at Believer's Fellowship or you're the pastor there or you're on the, you're the advisory committee there or you lead youth there. And they know that. They know where you go to church. It's a small town. Everybody knows everything. And you go in there and act like a jerk in CVs. You're representing me. You're representing this house. Ultimately, you're representing Christ. So make sure you're representing well. Amen? Dress accordingly. How do we do that? Same way you change clothes any other way. you got to take one thing off and put a new thing on. Amen? Paul, he gives us this list of things to put off 
that we don't wear as kingdom citizens. Verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, it says, the wrath of God is coming. Just because you go to church doesn't make you exempt from the wrath of God and the discipline of His hand. He says, in these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now I want to take a little closer look at this list. This isn't popular preaching, and I won't get a lot of amens, but God cares about these things. Holiness is still right. Sexual immorality, he says. The Greek word there is pornea. It's the same word we get pornography from. The King James Version translates it as fornication. And it is defined as any act of sexual intimacy found outside the safety of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Any act of sexual intimacy or gratification found outside the safety of covenant between marriage, of marriage between one man and one woman. I want to be in, I'm being intentional about a few of these words here. And I know there are children in the room, so we'll be tactical. But any kind of gratification or intimacy, whether that's on a computer screen, whether that's with a human being, whether that's with an app on your phone, whatever it might be, any kind found outside the safety. We used to say outside the confines of marriage. That sounds like you're in prison. (laughs) Aren't you? Hey, watch it now. He says, I'm saying outside the safety. God created marriage as the safe place for sexual intimacy to be be developed and to be uh, nurtured and to to grow. and, And it's a beautiful, powerful thing that God intended for his creation. And he says, but outside of that safety, there can be a lot of damage that takes place. I looked at scriptures this week. It says that 62% of men in church regularly view pornographic images. 62%. About 50% of pastors say they regularly view and, and find gratification outside of the safety of marriage. This is not just about adultery where you go have an affair. This is about just life in general. And this is a thing that our culture is facing. And, and Paul is saying here, if we really want to be different than the world around us, this is a primary area that we need to deal with. And here's the thing. The reason it's such a problem in the church is because the church never talks about it. And when we do talk about it, we just take the hammer down and say what you shouldn't do and what it's not about, and that kind of thing. And then now people are scared to talk about it. They're scared to bring it up in church. Children grow up, and they don't know right from wrong because they have only heard the wrong. They've never heard the right, and they don't know how to, who is safe to go talk to and, and, and ask questions and that kind of thing. Listen, parents, I want you to hear this. Your kids have already heard about it at school. They are not too young for you to talk to them and have healthy conversations about this kind of thing because if you're not the safe person to go and talk to about it, they'll go to the Internet. They'll go to their friends. They'll go to their smartphone and they'll find their answers there and it'll be the wrong answers. 
Parents, be the safe person for your child to come and talk to you about these things. Be open and honest with them. I know it can be awkward and difficult, but you've got to get over that if you really want your kids to grow up in a place where they can know what real sexual intimacy really is and God's plan for it. Amen? Sexual immorality, any kind of intimacy or gratification outside the safety of marriage between one man and one woman. He says impurity. Impurity speaks of being double-minded. Something that's impure is a mixture. It has something mixed in with it. Spiritual impurity is when we are somewhat serving God and somewhat serving our own sinful desires. Where you've got one foot in the camp and one foot out. And he says, you've got to get rid of that impurity stuff. We, we live in purity. We live in a place where we are fully devoted to one God. He says passion in the translation we use. Other translations use the word lust. This is a shameful passion. It speaks of not just lust participating in morality, but fixating on something in your mind. It's not just the action you do with your body, but what you do with your mind. It speaks to the sins of the mind, not just sins of the body. He deals with evil desires. It talks about a, a taste for sin, a taste for things that are not of God. He talks about covetousness and idolatry. And those obviously point back to the Ten Commandments where God gives the the. the guidelines for how to live a life for him and he says don't covet and don't worship idols and it speaks of being discontent in Christ and seeking to to uh, to satisfy your cravings in anything other than Christ and so covetousness is actually idolatry he says when you want something else that someone else has and you want it theirs you want from what they have instead of what God has for you that's what covetousness is and that's putting that thing in a place of lordship in your life instead of trusting Christ to provide you with everything in your life he talks about anger and wrath and he says this is not just a, a righteous anger this is an unrighteous anger this is explosive uncontrolled anger. Some of you got some anger problems that you need to deal with. It talks about malice. He says, and that's speaking or wishing misfortune on other people, whatever it might be. That's gossip. That's saying, oh, I hope that doesn't happen, but you really do hope it happens. That's sharing something with someone that you shouldn't share with them. Slander is literally the word blasphemy. It means defamatory speech against others. It means to curse someone. It means to spread rumors about someone. I'm not getting any amens this evening. Obscene talk. He says that's abusive language coarse or inappropriate speech. Jesus said that you and I, yes, we're Christians, but we'll still have to give an account for every word that we have spoken ever in our lives. And so he says, get rid of obscene talk, of coarse talk, of, of inappropriate speech, dirty talk, one translation puts it. You've got to put all those things off. Lying. Lying isn't just telling false statements. Lying is also saying I'm a Christian, but not living like one. Representing the name of Christ, but not living like Christ. That's also lying. He says, put all all of that off, all of those things, characteristics of who you used to be, things that are even celebrated in some cultures and in some philosophies and systems. Those are features of your old uniform, the dress code of humanity before you became a Christian. And he's saying to be a part of this new community called the body of Christ, to be a citizen of this new kingdom with Jesus Christ as king. There is a change in the culture. There's a change of uniform. You take off the old clothes and the old life and you put on something new. And just like in the Old Testament, the priest, before he entered into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he would take off his regular garment and he would put on that garment of praise. He would put on that garment that was special, that 
prepared him to go into the presence of the Lord. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve who had sinned, God made them clothing of animal skins to cover them, to cover their shame. He says, put on something new in your life. Take off the old and put on the righteousness of Christ. And then he gives a list of what we should put on. What does our uniform look like as Christians? What does this garment that we wear as Christians look like? He says, put on them as beloved, holy, chosen ones, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, verse 14, he says, put on love, which binds everything together. He says, put on compassionate hearts. This is a heart of mercy. This is a heart like God's heart, an attitude that imitates the attitude of Christ toward people who have failed. You know, we've been talking a lot about um, our community lately and, and how God's calling us to reach our community. And this is primary. This is this is. Um, essential to this outreach and this vision that God has given us for our community to put on compassionate hearts. It's no longer just like Jesus didn't go and ask the woman with the issue of blood, how'd you end up here? He didn't ask the cripple, how'd you end up like this? He didn't ask the blind person, what did you do to cause yourself to become blind? He just had compassion on them. Yes, there are some things that need to change. Yes, there's some things you need to get right. Yes, there's some things that we need to do to make sure you don't end up in this place again. But we're not looking at the past anymore. We're looking at how to get you out and how to bring change. And we have compassion on you where you are. And we understand that things are cycles. And maybe you didn't even know any better. And maybe it's not your fault that you were in this place. Or even if it was your fault. Guess what? I've made mistakes too. And so I'm going to have compassion on you. I'm going to look at you the way God looks at you. He says put on kindness. Now kindness then is not just a feeling. You don't just feel kind. Kindness is an action. Kindness requires you to do something. It speaks of benevolent works for someone else. He says put on humility. Submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing I didn't get here on my own and knowing that but by the grace of God, I would go the same way you've gone. I'm humble. The opposite of self-centeredness, the opposite of wanting it all to be about me. I read one time that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. He says, put on meekness. Meekness is opposite of that anger word before. It's the opposite of uncontrolled anger. It means strength under control. Meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness means being strong enough to manage your own emotions, being strong enough to control yourself. He says put on patience. It means treating people with the same patience that God treated you with. It means not seeking out revenge, wrath, or resentment. He says put on forgiveness. Jesus put it this way. He said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In another place, he said, with the same measure that you give forgiveness, that's the same measure you'll receive forgiveness. Put on forgiveness. All of this adds to, in his kingdom, the very last thing he says, above all of these, put on love. What's that mean? That means that all these other things fall under the category of a godly love for one another. We don't seek to one-up each other. We don't seek to puff ourselves up. We don't seek to harm one another. Instead, we bear each other's burdens. And as followers of Christ, 
We are a member of a new body, citizens of a new kingdom, part of a new society established on love and not hatred, established on kindness and not violence, established on forgiveness and not revenge, established on humility and not power. I think it's interesting here. When he's dealing with how we should live, he doesn't just tell us what not to do. See, living holy is more than just taking off things. Then you're just walking around naked. A life of holiness is not about how long a list of don'ts you have in your life. Living holy is also about what you do. It can't just be, well, I don't do these things that we have described as the unacceptable sins in our culture, and I've gotten rid of those things. I don't care if you don't drink. Can you be nice to people? I don't care if you don't gossip. Have you been generous and given? You know, it's not just about what you don't do. It's about what you do. Holiness is not just a putting off. Holiness is a putting on. Living for Christ to become a Christian is not just about stopping doing some things. Living for Christ as a Christian is about starting to do some things. If you've only done the work of stopping some things, you're only halfway. And it doesn't work the other way either. You don't get to just do a whole bunch of good things to outweigh the bad. It's a both. Put off and put on. Put off the old dirty thing. Put on something clean. Doesn't make any sense to go get a shower and then put on the same dirty clothes that you're in the chicken house with. Put off something old. Put on something new. Go forward. Move forward. Add something to your life. And can I tell you this? That is probably why some people struggle with certain sin is because they're trying to remove the sin, but they're not replacing it with anything else in their life. And so it creates this vacuum in your life where something has to fill that void. I've worked with addicts for over eight years now. It's been just a part of my ministry and a burden on my life. And every successful program for addiction out there, and addiction works just like every other sin. Hello. We all have some kind of addiction, whether it's just a sin or whatever it might be. Every successful addiction recovery program out there has a service component to it. At some point, you stop dealing with your problem and you start helping other people with their problems. And that is the key to success. That's why in AA, where eventually as you, or you're in recovery and you're sober, you become a sponsor for someone else. And that's a part of your recovery process. It's not just about what I stopped doing. I started serving a purpose bigger than myself. I started being less selfish and started being more selfless. I put on a kindness. I put on humility. I put on caring for someone else. And now all of a sudden when I'm living for someone else in a bigger cause, I forget about all those things that I thought I needed to do. That's what holiness is. That's what living for Christ is all about. Not just what you quit doing, but how have you started serving in his kingdom? How have you started being a part of this culture? And notice that these instructions are not just for the individual. This is a corporate body that Paul is writing to. He's writing to a local church. He's writing to a group of people. There are instructions for, their, for this body of believers. See, it is our job as members of this church, as members of this local body, to not just deal with our personal life, but to work to create a culture in here, in this house of compassion. Create a culture in this house of humility. Create a culture in this house of meekness. Create a culture in this house of patience and forgiveness 
and love. And this goes back to last week when we talked about there's a changing of the guard and a spiritual atmosphere in our community about being under new lordship and under new spiritual influence. The demonic spiritual influences of uncontrolled anger, of hatred, of malice, of gossip, of sexual immorality, of greed and covetous. They cannot be allowed a foothold in this church. They cannot be allowed a foothold in our relationships as a body of believers. They cannot be given a voice in our house. And Paul says they have to be put off, stripped away, sent away. So instead, this body, this community, we have to learn how to cooperate with one another in meekness and patience for one another. Some of y'all get on my nerves, but I'm patient with you. I try to be at least. I don't always succeed at it, but I'm trying to create a culture here of being patient with everyone here. And you, you help me do that by being patient with one another. Some of you, you need to go ask for forgiveness from some other people. Because you model forgiveness. When you do that, you help create and establish culture here. It makes no sense to be in the same room this morning and have a grudge against someone sitting on the other side of the room or bear unforgiveness towards someone on the other side of the room, but be in a house called Believer's Fellowship where we say we're going to reach our community with the love and forgiveness of God. It's got to start in our house. It has to start in our culture. It has to start here among us. That means when offenses come, we don't sit and stew over them. We don't build up resentments with each other. We go and talk to them in kindness and in love when that person offended me or when you, I offended you. That means you talk it out with love and understanding even when it's awkward and even when it's difficult. That means that you never go to complain to another person about that person, but you go directly to them. Jesus had something to say about that. Go to your brother and your sister first. And seek to mend fences instead of spreading gossip, spreading negativity and disunity. It means you extend patience when I'm being hard-headed and I'll do the same for you. And we commit to this kind of culture, this kind of behavior. God promises us in Colossians chapter 3 that the peace of God will rule over our church and our community. That strife ceases and peace reigns. And that peace that begins here in this house, it will begin to flow out of this house into our community, into our neighborhoods. And then he says we can focus on what we're really here for. To not be a social club with country club gossip, but be a worshipful community existing to bring glory to God through our worship, our witness, and our example. When kingdom culture begins to define who we are as a church that's when our families our community will become a true outpost for God's kingdom that's when this will really be a true beacon of light in our community a true place of hope for hopeless people when we develop a culture when we change our uniforms when we quit being double agents and we say I'm wearing my Savior's colors and I'm wearing His uniform and I'm putting on His righteousness and I'm putting on His ways and putting off my ways. And the, here's the thing about Scripture. Every commandment in Scripture is a promise. Every time God instructs you to do something in Scripture, it is a promise because He would never, He doesn't call you to things that He wouldn't also empower you to do. 
So if he tells you to put off sin, he means just that. He's promising you he'll give you everything you need to put off sin. If he tells you to put on righteousness, that means he'll give you everything you need. He'll give you the Holy Spirit that's really good at being righteous. And he'll give you that Holy Spirit to begin to guide you and lead you and fulfill you and form you. And so everything that I've just talked about, putting off all those things, that list of sin, and putting on all that list of righteous things and fruit of the Spirit, all of it's possible. Every single bit of it. There isn't one thing in this scripture that I read this morning that's impossible for you to do. No matter who you are, where you come from, or where you're at right now. There's not one single thing that's impossible. You can be humble. You can quit gossiping. You can put off sexual immorality. You can break an addiction to pornography. You can deal with your anger issue. You can be meek. You can be kind. You can, have a comp- you can have a compassionate heart. It's possible. The question is, are you going to let him do it in you? The question is, are you comfortable staying where you are? That's, comfort is almost always our enemy. The moment you start feeling comfortable about where you are in life or where you are with your relationship with God, that's the, that's the moment, well, maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's something I need to deal with here. Are you comfortable in your pride? Are you comfortable with that hidden app on your phone? Are you comfortable with that relationship that you know isn't right? Is it feeling safe to you? Are you not comfortable showing compassion to other people? Are you not comfortable with the vision that we've had for this community? Are you not comfortable with showing kindness to people? And if that's the case, then you got to go back and read chapters 1 and 2 again. Because remember, beliefs determine behaviors. And so, if that's the case, we got to make sure we're right with Christ. Because if he's really Lord, and if he's really Master, if he really has no rival and no equal, then, I need to, then, then there should be a desire to have what chapter 3 says I can have. See how that's connected? Behaviors determined by beliefs. Beliefs determine behaviors. I want you to stand with me this morning. Kate, if you'd come.